0: The Producing Crime podcast features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Walter Katz is Vice President of Criminal Justice for Arnold Ventures. In a wide-ranging chat, we talk about civilian oversight models, crisis response, responsibilities as civilian policymakers, controversial police shootings, and accountability around police use of force. I'm Jerry Ratcliffe, and welcome to Reducing Crime. Walter Katz is the Vice President of Criminal Justice for Arnold Ventures, a major philanthropic organization focused on improving American society in four areas, public finance, education, health, and criminal justice. Prior to joining Arnold Ventures, Walter was a public defender in Southern California before being appointed, in 2017, as Deputy Chief of Staff for Public Safety in the administration of Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel. With his extensive background and interests in policing, crisis response, police accountability and oversight, it's probably no surprise he's also been the Independent Police Auditor for San Jose, California, and has served as Deputy Inspector General for the County of Los Angeles Office of Inspector General involved with oversight of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Walter received his law degree from the McGeorge School of Law at the University of the Pacific and his undergraduate degree from the University of Nevada, Reno. In the chat you're about to listen to, we discuss the work of public defenders, civilian oversight models, the role of civilian policymakers, police use of force and controversial police shootings, and hey, we even touch on redlining. We caught up at the American Society of Criminology conference in Chicago, which, as you'll hear, is the town he was born in. It was actually great to meet in person, you know, in that 15-minute respite before the next variant of the coronavirus shut things down again. As you join us, I was just talking about a recent National Institute of Justice research grant I've been awarded to explore whether social workers are more effective at encouraging people towards treatment and shelter than police officers. Will a social worker be more effective? Because I think there are pros and cons to both of these approaches. But it also is that change of where policing or where public safety or community safety is really going.
1: Well, it's going, but I think it's going without necessarily a lot of research behind it. You know, there's certain models of alternative response systems which are getting a lot of momentum of policymakers, but they don't have a lot of evaluations or robust research to fall back on to say, this particular intervention will be effective be it a co-responder model or an alternative responder model.
0: I'm kind of fascinated that you're interested in research because everybody else seems to be just interested in advocacy or they have an opinion and they just want everybody to know what their opinion is. How did you end up here? Because, I mean, you went to law school and then became a public defender, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was my path.
0: Went to law school, became a public
1: defender in Southern California. First a couple of years in San Diego and then up to LA County, their alternative or alternate public defender's office. What's an alternate public defender's office? So... LA County has enough conflict cases, so they have a second office to take conflicts. Oh, nice. Dual defendant cases, multiple defendant cases, or the public defender has some other sort of conflict of interest. For for example, the new client
0: have been a witness against another client in the prior case. Right. Did you always want to do it? Or did you kind of, you're in the middle of law school thinking, right, I'm going to do real estate law and make a fortune.
1: So that was early 90s when I was in law school. In 1991, a recession hit. And I didn't go to Bolt or Stanford. You know, I went to a second-tier school. And Proud of them. Yeah. Proud of them. That's right. <laughs> and job interviews dried up with private law firms. And right. I started putting applications in both for prosecutors' offices and for defense offices. It's the same semester I started starting to take criminal procedure, though. So I'm reading all these Fourth Amendment cases with all of these dissents by Justices Marshall and Brennan. And I'm siding with them all the time. Finally, I came to that point saying, I'm not quite sure if I'm right as a prosecutor, if I'm disagreeing with all this Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. So I just ended up as a public defender and really liking it.
0: Well, at least you got a job, because otherwise in Southern California, isn't everybody who's unemployed a struggling actor? In LA. So it seems, right? You didn't go for a few auditions, did you?
1: Uh, not, not me. Yeah, never made it to the entertainment industry. Uh, but, you know, being a trial lawyer is sort of like being a performer. You're definitely on show. On show. And at it's 75 or so jury trials, a lot of, you know, homicide cases. It's so much easier representing somebody when the evidence against them is really strong. What is really hard is when you have a client who you think is actually innocent and their life depends uh, upon what you're doing. You know that case didn't turn out well for for my client, and he got life in prison for for murder, and that
0: really knocked me
1: off my off my feet for a bit.
0: What's it like to defend somebody when the evidence against them is really strong?
1: You're fulfilling your obligation under the Constitution to zealously represent somebody, knowing that in doing so you're assuring that his con- or her constitutional rights are being
0: protected. Have you ever had cases where? The evidence was really strong and you kind of knew they did it, but they got off. I've
1: been asked that before by other folks. And of the 75 cases I did, I think I have one, which was a kidnap for robbery case, where I'm pretty sure I had a very clever client who got away with one. But, you know, for him, there will be another day. For somebody who is innocent and they're wrongfully convicted and they're sentenced to life in prison, there's not another day.
0: Right. So, you were doing the public defender work? Yep. What was next for you after that?
1: So, I was getting burned out by it. I, Understandably. Yeah, I as the kind of public defender like many of us who I lived my cases, and it wasn't good for my emotional or my physical
0: health. I spoke a while back to former Philadelphia Police Commissioner Charles Ramsey. Mm, I know what you're going to say. He was saying this, the same thing. He was saying that the stress, the pressure of just the criminal justice system of policing, he couldn't bury another police officer who had been killed yes. on duty. And I've he- heard,
1: I've heard Chuck say the same thing. It was like one funeral's too many.
0: Yeah. This whole system is exhausting for everybody working in it.
1: it. It is not only exhausting, I think that the emotional trauma, which men and women who are in this line of work, especially those who are out in the street, who see that trauma firsthand is completely underappreciated. And the secondary trauma that people in the courtroom go through, I think it's completely not understood. I mean, now I look back at it and say, how inured was I that I didn't even get pause to spending my lunch break leafing
0: through autopsy photos. With the sandwich in the other hand.
1: Literally, right? Early in my career in LA County, a lawyer is really, was kind of a mentor for me. He said to me, you know, every lawyer has a fixed number of trials in them. You just don't know what that number is. Oh, but you will when you get there. Right. And I could tell I, I hit that stage. I did not want to be the lawyer who drops dead of a heart attack during cross-examination.
0: Well, at the very least, it would be inconvenient for everybody. Did would have to declare a
1: mistrial? Maybe they wouldn't. <laughs> and I'd have to come back the next day. Uh, so, you know, and at the same time, I was getting really interested in police misconduct work. In 1999, I think that's the right year, LAPD found themselves deep in a scandal, the Rampart crash scandal, uh, involving their anti-gang team in the Rampart District. So my office put a team together, and our job was to go through all the cases which the Rampart crash team had been involved in. So that really got me interested in the deep misconduct work. And so uh, a few years later, this opportunity opened up with this office, which had oversight over the L.A. County Sheriff's Department called the Office of Independent Review, and we provided oversight of the Sheriff's Department.
0: Did that model work? Because there are so many different models of oversight taking place, not just here in the United States, but around the world. Mm. Are there some models that seem to work better than others?
1: I've been involved in a lot of the different models. So where I was with LA County and OIR, what was unique about that office is that we had attorney-client privilege
0: with the sheriff's department. So you're kind of almost like a Venn diagram, slightly overlapping enough to be able to access their paperwork.
1: Yes, and so the upside was we had access. The downside was is that because of attorney-client privilege, we couldn't disclose everything. Right. Eventually, they decided to dissolve that office and then created a new inspector general. I joined that inspector general's office. Now, several years later, they are still in a challenge of how do you have adequate oversight over a sheriff's department? And sheriff's departments and municipal police departments are these two separate animals you know they're structured differently they're often in a state constitution they tend
0: to be more conservative they have their own independent power i don't think enough people appreciate that under the surface there are significant differences between municipal police departments in the cities and sheriff's offices they are like a completely different animal and you see that firsthand
1: in la county where i was in the criminal courts building where famously oj simpson got got tried most innocent man in america and not convicted Tried and not convicted. And so those cases were <laughs> LAPD cases. And so that's really where I cut my teeth. And then for a couple of years, I was assigned to a courthouse up in the Antelope Valley doing defense work up here in this LA exurb, much more conservative, where the main agency was the LA County Sheriff's Department. And I saw a completely different style of policing. Mm. Yeah, 18,000 departments, about half of them have 10 or fewer yep. agencies, 10 or fewer officers. If you want to bring about reform and change to policing, scaling that, replicating that is extraordinarily difficult. How do we improve police accountability? How do we think about structural barriers to accountability and transparency? When we started thinking about that last year, after George Floyd, we said 18,000 departments, but there's 50 state legislators. Fill in after your LA work. So, 2015, I was appointed by the San Jose City Council to be their independent police auditor. There is yet another oversight model, right, the auditor model. Then, at some point that year, the City Council of uh, Chicago reached out to me, because they were in the middle of their crisis with Laquan McDonald, and they were trying to figure out what should our civilian oversight look like. It's not insignificant
0: for a city like Chicago.
1: No. The interesting thing with Chicago is that they've tried civilian oversight now for many decades, right, the Chicago Police Board came about back in, like, in 1961. Yeah, every single time there is a major scandal or controversy, the tendency was we need to either do it differently or add more oversight. Chicago and Seattle are two cities with more oversight agencies than any others. I mean, Seattle has the OPA, the Inspector General, and a Community Commission. Uh, Chicago has the Inspector General, it has the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, and there's a police board which adjudicates cases, and now the city council has just created a civilian commission. I mean, it sounds disorganized and chaotic. If each entity has a different piece, though, it theoretically could work. If you, for example, in Chicago have COPA or OPA in Seattle, and they investigate the complaints, and then you have a police board, which is the final adjudicator for serious complaint cases, and you have an inspector general who takes on more of the systemic challenges and identifies systemic issues. You've now covered both the micro and the macro issues, which probably one agency cannot do as well by itself, because they're very different types of skills and goals that, that you're looking at.
0: Just listening to all of this, and then I think about the lack of oversight in just about every other branch of the criminal justice system. There's pretty much no oversight for prosecutors. Not- there's, there's no oversight for judges. All the focus is on frontline policing. And then the rest of the system just gets seems to get a pass.
1: Yeah, you have things like judicial councils. I guess you have the Court of Appeals, etc. But because policing is so visible, it is the most frequent interaction for
0: many people between the state and themselves. Completely. They could be driving past people who work in other parts of government, but they wouldn't recognize It's not like we paint their cars a different color and put lights on them.
1: Correct. And so it's an ongoing challenge human nature tends to be driven by anecdote and narrative rather than for example statistics so we tend to focus on the awful and not necessarily take that step back and look at the broader context
0: did you get a chance to do that in chicago
1: in chicago that was such an incredibly satisfying two years you know i was in the mayor's office for 25 months it's such a relief to speak to somebody who enjoyed
0: their job for a while
1: it was exhausting. I got a out-of-the-blue phone call from somebody in the administration. We're a few weeks away from the Department of Justice's pattern and practice investigation report going public. We're pretty sure they're going to be asking for a consent decree. Would you be interested in joining the mayor's team to lead the public safety effort, including the work on the consent decree and police reform? I mean, you grew up
0: on the West Coast.
1: Born in Chicago, grew up basically in the West
0: Coast. On the West Coast. So did it feel like coming home or did it feel like coming to an alien land? It felt like coming to something completely new.
1: Chicago is so different than California. For somebody who is, quote unquote, a police reformer, I saw that as an extraordinary opportunity.
0: Do you see yourself as a police reformer? I do. I think a lot of us do, but we just see different paces and areas of focus in terms of that reform. But I think I think there's always a need to keep improving and moving forward.
1: Exactly. And I think some people can have differences as to how deep and systemic they think the problem may be. I label myself to be a pragmatic idealist, where I have these ideals, but I'm, I'm relatively pragmatic in how we get there. Going back to the mayor's office, for somebody who comes from the background I have, a former public defender who is passionate about better, more accountable, and more transparent policing. It's something I could not pass up. Mayor Rahm Emanuel made a conscious choice to bring in a quote-unquote police reformer to be on the city side of the consent decree negotiation. I felt, wow, that is such an awesome responsibility, including responsibility to uh, people in the city of Chicago who are in the communities that are most impacted by violence and most impacted by the phenomenon of over-policing and under-policing.
0: Yeah. So over-policing and under-policing is a really interesting one. You see yourself as a pragmatic reformer. I think naive reformers want to ignore that. But I see some of these Gallup polls that say something like 80% of African Americans across the United States want the same or more policing. And they have a right to deserve better policing for sure. But they don't want no policing. And more
1: localized polling bears that out. You know, shortly after the protests in Minneapolis and as the defund policing slogan was catching momentum, there was polling, I think the New York Times published it, of residents of North Minneapolis, which showed a really nuanced view of a desire to be safe, feel safe, a recognition that policing helps with safety, but also really strong feelings that the policing they were getting was not meeting their needs. There's a really interesting paper by Daniel Webster and Shawnee Bugs looking at gun crime enforcement in Baltimore, surveying of residents in the most impacted communities. You see the exact same phenomenon there. They mentioned three things. One, they wanted to feel safe. Secondly, they thought the police were targeting the wrong people. And thirdly, not actually identifying and catching the people responsible for the violence. And there, in a nutshell, is that over-policing and under-policing. When we think about what is it that we want, as a culture, the police to be doing and not doing, we need to have a strong body of evidence to understand what is it that police are doing well right now? What is it that we want them to be doing? What is it that we don't want them to be doing? I'm not sure if that came out right. So as long as you go for a triple negative, we'll be fine, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But let's, for example, look at violent crime. Clearance rates hover, depending on the jurisdiction, somewhere between 40 and 50%. What I don't see, and I'm putting a lot more focus and a lot more onus on civilian policymakers, is when civilian policymakers are approving public safety budgets, and by the way, when police chiefs are putting forward public safety budgets, are we properly right-sizing how we're assigning our, our workforce? We should really be asking if a city has hundreds of homicides per year and shootings, Perhaps we should have more investigators assigned to
0: the detective bureau. The gulf between homicide investigations in big cities in the United States and when I've seen them in other countries, there's a team of 20 or 30 detectives working on a homicide for weeks and weeks and weeks before they start downsizing the team. And in Philly, there's a team of a few folk turn up in Baltimore, a few folk turn up, and then pretty much within 48 hours, it's, t- it's two officers. Yep. And those two officers are carrying a dozen cases. I think that improving of
1: clearance rates of violent crime is probably one of the keystones to improve policing and legitimacy. And this question of how might we create a better investigator, what does that look like? And that's exactly why that experience, first in California and especially in the mayor's office, So shaped me and set me up then for the work I'm doing at at Arnold Ventures.
0: Yes, why would you ever want to leave Chicago as we sit here in November freezing borderline hypothermia outside? First snowfall somewhere around
1: Halloween, last snowfall somewhere around May 1st. Springtime's the worst, just kind of sort of cold. Yeah. I find that annoying. Uh, So (laughs) sometimes you may not even have a spring, it just kind of goes to winter to winter, light to summer. But you know, the, the city's extraordinarily challenging. And so when the mayor's term came to an end in 2019, my run here came to an end as well.
0: Were you seen as a political appointment?
1: Well, technically there are political appointments, you know, to the mayor's senior staff.
0: The depth, especially in the federal government of political appointees, I always find incredibly counter to long-term strategic thought and planning. So an amazing way to run government here.
1: And that goes exactly to that challenge about how does one try innovative practices and then allow for them to be evaluated and then hopefully scaled up or replicated if a a police chief may only be around for let's say three or so years and then the next chief comes in and he he or she wants to do something very differently because of their experience and often they
0: kill the cubs and decimate anything their predecessor did so that they can be seen to be doing something new
1: Exactly. And I think this goes to deeper questions, but it goes to the nature of how we think about leadership in this country. If, for example, one has a pension system where one's pension is based upon, let's say, three years of service and the average salary, and you've been on the job now for 30 years, and now you can achieve salary. In three years, your pension will max out. Yeah. Where's the incentive to, to leave? You can, you can take retirement, be a consultant and do pretty well for yourself and then the next chief comes along or and i go back to my what is my current windmill civilian policymakers. so many city councils tend to be hands-off very deferential to a chief until it hits the fan and then they tend to overreact do pernicious things like you know cut a chief's salary just to make a point and then they wonder why top quality chiefs didn't walk away
0: And I'm immediately thinking of Carmen Best in Seattle. Absolutely. Who's absolutely excellent and very thoughtful. Yes. And was absolutely the right person to help resolve some of the issues in Seattle. And city council just dropped her like a hot potato. Yeah, because in the moment it
1: appeared for some of the council members, apparently, it was the expedient thing to do. So that experience in the mayor's office was extraordinarily challenging. But I learned so much from that experience. Right. That... When the opportunity came up at Arnold Ventures, it was that second time in my career where I had to say, how could I not say yes?
0: So, albeit we're still trying to build an evidence base, it feels like no department can survive an egregious shooting a bad shooting these days because it it just blows up instantly kind of everywhere. How do we find a way to still move forward? And the reason I, I suppose I say this is because it feels like we just reset the clock 30 years after George Floyd. And yet if you look at some bigger police departments like New York, police-involved shootings have been coming down year after year after year. It feels like that kind of level of progress just kind of got thrown out the window.
1: Yeah, you know, still in the aggregate though, year in and year out, about a thousand people are killed by the police. And so you may have some agencies who appear to have brought that number down significantly, such as NYPD, but still a thousand people every single year. And we only know that from non-official data. I know, that's preposterous, isn't it? It's ridiculous. And so
0: this lack of transparency feeds into the distrust. On that number of 1,000, what is a reasonable number? I mean, if we're looking at 65, 75 million police community interactions in the most heavily armed population in the world, they're going to keep happening. We can't get that number down to zero. Or do you think we can? I, 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 what is a reasonable number to go for? You know.
1: I would ask this question, if we think back to all the controversial police shootings over the last decade, let's go back to uh, Mike Brown in, in, in Ferguson. I can only think of one where the person who was killed by the police had a gun near them and that was Philando Castile. So we peel away all the shootings, which may be about 400 per year, of people who are not armed with a firearm, you just use that subset. And I'll ask you this question. Okay, there's a lot of police interactions per year. There's 50,000 traffic stops per day. How many is too many fatal encounters? I ask, well, how many airline miles are flown per year? How many takeoffs, takeoffs and landing do airliners make every single day, every single month? How many airplane crashes by airliners would be too many? Right now we have about zero. So the, the goal is to get down to zero? The goal is to decrease shootings of people for whom... Deadly force is not justified right. as close to zero as possible. Yeah, that sounds perfectly
0: reasonable to me. I often, these management people, say that objectives should be smart objectives, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound, and that kind of thing. And it's very difficult to get an answer. So, I mean, if you're talking about, say, 400 that are probably either egregious or suspicious or lawful but awful, a goal would be around 600-ish.
1: I'm just going to assume that... If the person with the gun was armed and was using that firearm in a way that an officer reasonably feared for the safety of themselves or somebody else, that, that would be under the law a justified shooting. So I'm just giving a, 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 a degree of deference. Questions still should be asked, but we can at least start from a place of deference there. But if we take the ones which are shootings of people who are not armed, or killings of people who are not armed, right? George Floyd was not shot and killed. Eric Garner was not shot and killed, right? And those non-shooting fatalities are completely undercounted. The serious injuries as a result of a use of force, there's not even some data. It's extraordinarily poor data.
0: So, if you could design the model, mm-hmm. who would investigate these? Well, first of all, this is... I mean, feel okay talking yeah, about this, because I'm kind no, of fascinated no, in this, because I think this is really important for us to try and get right. Well,
1: first of all, I, I think that
0: policing is a high-risk profession, which is
1: not regulated like one. So let's start with the word profession. Cops want to be treated like professionals.
0: Oh, it, yeah, it's still a job in many places. Uh,
1: yes. And that's the problem. And that's the problem. If we want to treat it like a profession, let's treat it like a profession. Therefore, it should be subject to a really high degree of state regulation. How many other jobs or professions are
0: out there where you can take somebody's life? Oh, intensive care nurses have to do continuing education that gets tested on a regular basis on the latest science and knowledge in their field. Correct. You have to do more exams and more tests to be a cosmetologist, you know, to do people's hair and makeup in New Jersey than you do to be a police officer.
1: We undervalue training. We overvalue custom and anecdote. We have special operations soldiers in the military who, if they're not out in theater, they're back at home base for six months training. Imagine you have a a police force which uses a platoon system. Let's say you have three platoons and one of your three platoons is always training. have to make a decision about how many police officers do we need and that is determined by what kind of work do we want them to be doing how many more resources should be invested in investigators it would mean having a completely different looking type of professionalized police force and maybe fewer agencies maybe far more serious training Maybe we should be thinking about like the three-year policing university we
0: see in Scandinavia. But somebody once said to me people in America want everything and pay for nothing. I mean, I agree with you, but the taxpayer doesn't seem to have demonstrated any interest in actually funding this kind of stuff.
1: Well, you know, we don't have a lot of uh, use of cost-benefit analysis in this country. We don't think about return on investment when it comes to public spending. I understand that. I am, though, saying that And once again, I'm going to go look at civilian policymakers, that they need to step up. I saw firsthand boards of supervisors and and city councils do their work. That must have been kind of depressing, wasn't it? Some do it better than others. Right. Some do risk management far better than others. Some of them basically just rubber stamp whatever civil litigation settlement occurred, don't ask enough questions, don't ask for corrective action plans. They basically rubber stamp public safety budgets and don't understand anything which is in there. They approve or ratify collective bargaining agreements.
0: So this almost sounds like you're more interested in looking at the bigger picture than thinking about the different mechanisms of oversight and investigation. I'm looking at it from a systems perspective. Right, okay. Yes.
1: I mean, you talked earlier about how many parts of the criminal justice system are not actually subject to any form of oversight. It is a systems issue. And it's easy just to say it's the cop's fault or it's the police chief's fault. We get what we're paying for. And if we have civilian policymakers, if we have mayors and city councils who are not asking the right questions, but don't don't even know what the right questions are to ask, how should we then be disappointed at the end that we're not getting the policing that we want?
0: Civilian policymakers have to step up and do a better job. When cities start spending those kinds of monies, are are they better off with external investigation of, say, police-involved shootings or internal? How do we do this well?
1: I've read enough transcripts and heard recordings of internal investigations of shootings which leaves
0: me very doubtful that that is the right approach to take okay so it's going to have to be external now how do we give them enough teeth to be able to rid policing of bad cops
1: i think that's a challenge with oversight and that's a challenge with police reform is what are the outcomes that we're trying to seek if the outcomes are a procedural one that we want to have more trustworthy investigations that are more transparent which have a more rigorous process. That is different than saying, we want more cops to get prosecuted. Those are two different end results. And I'm more interested in that first result because the first result will then hopefully get us to the right answer in any particular given shooting. Some are good, some are awful, but we need to have the right processes in place. So we feel like we have a reliable system.
0: But when we take something to be more public and more transparent, it ends up being more political most of the time, because this is American, we make politics out of everything. And that can be often by trial by public media and in a very public situation and it seems when we have that kind of a situation there doesn't seem much space in policing for genuine honest mistakes anymore
1: i think that if we look here in the united states at some of the independent models which are being developed i do not think we've seen that phenomenon if we are going to go down the path though of independent investigations of serious use of force. We have to make a commitment of properly and adequately funding those agencies, properly staffing them with really good training. I mean, if I were, for example, to be given a blank piece of paper and said, go out and create an independent uh, investigation office, I'm probably not gonna be hiring former officers from that agency, probably not hiring former officers from elsewhere, unless of a really rigorous hiring system but it would be looking at, for example, NCIS and the other military agencies who've been doing criminal investigations, but in a different setting to bring those skill sets into this setting. You just need to have good investigators. And I worry about when we have independent investigation systems, that investigators that we have are not experienced enough and not trained well enough to do the job well. So we have to really think carefully about that. So good funding, independence. Smart hiring.
0: There are not many parts of public policy where you have to make, you know, split second kind of decisions and people are going to make mistakes. And I think they're going to make genuine mistakes Ab- and then the, they, they're yes. going to be assholes and then they're yes. going to people make genuine mistakes. There, w- there absolutely will be people who
1: make mistakes. And we as a society have to determine what is the, the consequence for making such a mistake. If a nurse administers the wrong medication and a person has an adverse reaction and they die as a result. What are the consequences for that? If an officer mistakenly identifies a cell phone as a gun and shoots and kills that person holding the cell phone, and it was a genuine mistake, we have to figure out what should the consequence be for that. Again, I'm living in a hypothetical mature society, which can (laughs) do some rigorous decision-making.
0: If only. If only. Where is this magical land of which you speak, Walter? (laughs) The magical
1: land in Walter Katz's head. (laughs) Or, so, uh, well, so I, I'd like to live there, yeah. please. That would be really nice. So there's models out there. You know, and I wrote about this several years ago about looking at the Canadian model using the Special Investigations Unit, where you have this separate unit which does investigations, and then they turn over those investigations to the Crown Prosecution Service to do the charge and decision. You know, of course, the United Kingdom has a system too, but I'm not in the fairyland. I know both of those models have also had their own controversies. Right. Look, we're going to have controversy no matter what if we're giving people the power to make life and death decisions in a culture of 400 million guns and in a culture which seems to be incapable of
0: getting away from its uh, racialized history and present. So that brings me to one of the other areas which I think is interesting, trying to get policing out of dealing with people with mental health problems, especially, because they're disproportionately focused on the minority community because they have less access to health care and less access to structural benefits of society and education and all those kind of things for the history of the country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it makes kind of sense. In your mature, rational world, it would be fine. But we're trying to pull police out of lower-level, say, mental health core call disturbance-type calls, and we're only going to have police going to the more serious and violent one, there's going to be an unintended consequence of that. The rate at which police get involved in use of force is actually going to increase because they're now not going to all the lower level ones. And it's actually gonna look worse because the ratio, the number of calls they go to where they have to use use of force is likely to actually increase. And we're not gonna deal with the racial disparity because as a country, we don't wanna deal with the longer term mental and the other health issues. Sure, it's like you've been
1: inside my mind. <laughs> yes, I've gone through the exact same thought exercise. That is we shrink that so-called footprint of policing. And we're gonna make it look worse. Well, we're gonna be treating policing more like armed response teams. That's not going to build community relations what depends, to solve those homicides. It all depends how well that they are trained and what they are trained in. Are they being trained in de-escalation? Look, I think we undervalue the importance of good decision-making. I think when we hire officers, we should be thinking much more carefully in our hiring criteria of what do we want to see in a police officer. One thing that we want, we want to see an extraordinary high degree of decision-making capability. Um, And if we would hire for that, then those instances, those volatile situations may have better outcomes. And that's why I go back to the special operations soldier example. If they spend a third of their time at least training, that's a better thing than, well, you know, he's going to have maybe 20 hours of CPT in any given year.
0: But sure. But say in a hypothetical world, you've got 100 mental health calls and at 10 of them. There is going to need to be a use for use of force because some people have got really severe problems, and those include violence, okay? We can't take those down to zero. I've spent way too much time on the street to know. Mm -hmm. However good some officers are, however good anybody is, there is going to be hands-on with, say, 10 of them. Mm -hmm. If we take 80% of those calls and get them to another agency, now we're sending police to 20 calls... Of which 10 will require use of force so now we've taken them to police used force 10% of the time to now they've used force 50% of the time yep. now even if they reduced that by half and only use force five times they're still now using force 25% of the time when they were using force 10% of the time now in a mature country we would turn around and go well there's very good reasons for this mm-hmm. but for people who don't like the police this is it feels like a setup because they're just going to hammer away the the increased use of force with fewer calls. uh, But I think in aggregate we're going to see less use of force,
1: but we're going to see a higher proportion of force being used. And I also want to see whether not the force that is used is proportional to the resistance that is being exhibited by the person. And I think of better training and better decision making, we'll see more proportional force Force used perhaps is a higher percentage of all calls being made, perhaps, but fewer calls and fewer force used overall in aggregate.
0: So if we include all the calls that got given to another, uh, some other agency, that's, that's the alternative response model. Right assuming that the evidence supports their efficacy, which I think is a a call for research. Is this one of the areas that Arnold Ventures is is getting into?
1: In our policing portfolio, we are focused in three areas, which is improving accountability, reducing violent crime, and reimagining their their crisis response. Uh, It's in that question of the crisis response where we're asking that question of what should police be doing, what could they be doing better, and what should they not be doing? And if we go through, this, through that decision tree of what should they not be doing, it naturally begs the question of, well, if they're not doing it, who is? But those are just some of those questions that we're asking ourselves, and
0: you'll see us being pretty active in that. Okay. You talked to Chunk about training. That's going to increase costs. Are you running into issues with people from the defund side of the world? Because, I mean, is there any agency that's ever improved by taking money away from them?
1: I think that
0: 2020 ended up being an exercise in how
1: public safety budgeting should not be done. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but there's some realities though, right? It was what, certainly interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. But look, 90% plus of police budgets are personnel costs. And I think that the defund movement had this belief that if we start cutting budgets, there are going to be less police officers. And that's a net good thing. And. I don't necessarily think that some of the proponents of significant (laughs) decreases in police budgets thought through two important questions. First is, are we speaking for the community or are we talking, are we speaking for a pretty narrow cohort, which already agrees with us? And secondly, what are the consequences if those choices
0: are made? I like the research model that you're moving towards because it strikes me as a, a better model for incremental change in a democracy it's perfectly reasonable for politicians a political system to turn around and just change and adjust the size of the police force but again it's it seems a failure to the community if you don't have the replacement in place
1: well i I agree the reckoning which came out of the murder of george floyd is that it took that awful event before there could be serious conversations about race and the criminal justice system And unfortunately, since then, there has been this, almost this nativist backlash against any conversation uh, about race. A backlash against asking nuanced questions about what is it that we want to get out of our policing system. So that's turned into either you're for defund the police and all cops are bastards, or you're back to blue, and there is nothing in between.
0: Policing is often described as a business of first response, but it's often really the business of last resort. And it doesn't feel like we're having a real conversation about, especially for minority communities, communities of color, have been failed by all the other systems. The healthcare system, the mental health support system, the education system, the socio-political system. And we're not addressing any of that. We're not putting the fixes in place so that we will still be having this conversation in 20 years time.
1: And, uh, you know, law professor Monica Bell writes about this, that, you know, with policing being the most frequent contact between members of marginalized communities and the state, and they're already so detached from being treated well by government overall, that that just creates
0: this further tension which feeds upon itself. So, oh. police community reactions are in the bigger picture more strategic, but it could almost be seen th- the, the troubles with them are a symptom of a much bigger issue. They're not, they can be the cause in themselves, but yes. they're not the, just the cause in themselves. They are a symptom of just a bigger failing of government to support these communities for decades. Well, let's go all the way back to like the, the 1920s the
1: role of redlining.
0: Oh, in Philadelphia, um, right. it was brutal. Absolutely. absolutely. And it's still, to this day, the maps reflect the redlining that took place in Philadelphia in the 1940s. They
1: reflected in Philadelphia, they reflected in Minneapolis, they reflected in Los Angeles. And so now you have redlined communities together. Let's take Chicago, for example, where black residents were concentrated into the south and the west sides. Then you had industry leave, and people who become more middle class, they left for the suburbs. Folks are left behind who had fewer resources, far fewer economic assets, and the well-paying jobs had left. And then let's build these public housing towers, which further institutionalized their existence. Why would they not be cynical?
0: Well, on this really cheery note Mm. of how well things are going, I suppose we better get back to the conference. But uh, Walter, I really appreciate you spending some time with me.
1: Yeah, this is, uh, I haven't done a live in-person
0: interview in more than two years. And
1: I forgot how much fun they could be. I thought you were about to say how painful it was going to be. <laughs> uh, I,
0: I've been through worse. <laughs> Thanks so much. Okay, thank you.
1: That
0: was episode 43 of Reducing Crime, recorded at the American Society of Criminology Conference in Chicago in November 2021. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore Reducing Crime. Instructors can also DM me for a spreadsheet of multiple-choice questions for every episode. And as always, you can find a transcript of any episode at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. Be safe, and best of luck.